Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. Before we get to today's show, a very quick heads up. We have another bonus episode for you this week. So if all goes well and my fabulous producers, Matt and Chica, aren't completely snowed under and I get everything to them in time, shout out to them, Matt and Chica. Then at the same time that this pod goes up, another will also go live. So I won't spoil it for you guys, but I think you'll enjoy that one as well. Now, on to today's show. Yo, technology, what is it all about? Imagine a person who has a photographic memory and has read every document that any human has ever written. They can think for 60,000 years for every second that passes. If you have a brain like that, then questions that are really difficult for us to answer as a species or as individuals about the nature of the universe, how, how do you build a fusion reactor, how do you build a teleporter, things that would be amazing if we had them, but are just out of reach of our small mi- minds, become in reach all of a sudden. We have a real mind bender for you this week on Danny in the Valley. I sat down with Scott Phoenix, who is the founder of Vicarious, which happens to be the favorite artificial intelligence company of Silicon Valley's biggest billionaires. Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Mark Benioff have all invested personally in this company. Why? Because Phoenix and his fellow geniuses or genii are working on uh, developing general AI, and that's an important distinction. So it's not AI for a specific task like sorting your newsfeed or helping you with your Google searches, but AI that can think for itself, that has intuition or something like it, that can invent things all on its own, which is why Phoenix reckons that it is potentially the last invention we'll ever need. So as Ron Burgundy might say, it's a pretty big deal. And the first place he plans to integrate the AI brain that Vicarious is developing is into robots. A few months ago, I visited ABB, which is this giant Swiss industrial conglomerate that happens to be one of the largest makers of robots, industrial robots, in the world. And I went over to their showroom and saw a few of them in action. Here's one. I know, it's riveting. 
But just to explain what you were hearing there, it was a robot arm sorting through a tub of red Legos, picking out pieces, then assembling them one piece at a time into an ABB Lego logo. This is something a child could do without too much trouble. But the ABB guys told me that that task alone, finding the appropriate pieces and ever so delicately placing them one on top of the other, required about half a day's worth of programming coding to explain to the robot that's what it had to do. And I would bet that if we pitted the robot against an eight-year-old in a time trial, the eight-year-old would get it, hands down. I say all of that because, to me, it really highlighted how far the AI bogeyman that Elon Musk and others are warning about is from taking over the world. Anyhow, ABB has a venture capital arm that invests in companies that are working on ways to help make their machines smarter, and one of them is Vicarious. So they put me in touch with Scott, who invited me to his office in Union City, which is across the bay from San Francisco. I sat down with Scott to talk about where we are in the AI revolution, how quickly it may take hold, and what it may mean for humanity. Just one other word of warning, we actually recorded this a couple months ago, so when he talks about the price of Bitcoin, that is when it was still just sky high, and Facebook also comes up, but that was, of course, before Zuckerberg fell into the whole Cambridge Analytica fiasco. Just keep that in mind. Now, without further ado, Here's Scott. So I'm here in Vicarious's global headquarters in Union City. That's right. <laughs> um, so it's probably best to just start with a basic question. What is, what is the big idea behind Vicarious? What are you trying to do here? The big idea behind Vicarious is right now we're all living in bizarro land and we don't even realize it. Like right now, the world is full of cheap robot parts like cheap motors cheap electricity cheap sensors cheap metal and plastics and nobody owns any robots it's kind of remarkable if you go into a factory a hospital or a restaurant there aren't any robots and there's only they only ship a couple hundred thousand robots a year and that's it and yet we have all the tools necessary to build a world full of billions of these things but the software but the ai layer that makes the robot do something smart with its hands and fingers and feet so and that's, that's what you're that's trying what, to build. That's what Vicarious is building. You're We're trying to build the brain, brain the built robot brain. The brain to power the, the robot age. So I was doing some research before I came over here. Have you guys pivoted? Because before you were talking about kind of generalized AI, or is this just... Here's the application of it. We're an AI company. We always will be an AI company. And I think the most interesting and the most uh, transformative thing you can do with AI is put it inside of a body and use that body to help lift humanity up. And so that's what I want Vicarious to do, and that's why Vicarious has recently announced that we're deploying our, our AI inside robots. Right, as the kind of the first application. The first applications inside robots. I saw earlier in some of the previous kind of coverage you guys had, you guys talked about this idea of general AI being the last invention. How does that work? Why, why would that be the case? So there's AI is what you hear talked about a lot. You know, AI, Siri has AI, and everybody's AI. Yeah, you know, your toaster oven has some AI in it. <laughs> Everything is AI. Your smart it. fridge. Yeah, your so. smart fridge, and that's what we call narrow AI. It's AI that does a very particular task really, really well, probably better than a human could do it. You see these announcements about Google being able to play Go or chess better than any human, and that's another case of narrow AI. And what's sort of missing from these narrow AI headlines is the shortcuts and 
trade-offs that they had to make in order to get it to work. Like for example, that Go and chess playing AI that, that Google made, it takes the equivalent of about 5,000 years of a human playing chess 24 seven without sleeping in order for it to be good at chess. It's a really brute force AI system that's really good at chess because it has a ton of data and it's a narrow system. What comes next in our evolution of artificial intelligence is creating more and more general AIs that can not just do one specific task really well, but can do all kinds of different tasks and where you can change the nature of the task on the fly and where the machine can learn on its own, come up with ideas on its own and, and adapt. And that's what humans are great at and that's what someday robots will be great at too. When I say general intelligence is humanity's last invention is once you have a generally intelligent AI, it can invent things on its own. And humanity's capacity to invent new things is amplified by infinity because this this invention can then invent its own inventions. And I know this is probably, I don't know if this is an answerable question, but how far are we from that? We have lots of sub-AIs that yeah. are directed at a certain task. I don't know if you want to call autocorrect an AI. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not very good half the time. So how far are we from moving beyond these kind of specific tasks to something that is, you know, the kind of the mother brain? I mean, I think it depends on who you ask and, and everyone is probably wrong about it. It's really difficult to predict the timing of these technological revolutions. What I will say is that there's a lot of work to be done to go from, you know, a system that can do autocorrect well or even okay and a system that can come up with its own ideas and, and plan and be in a complex environment and the kinds of things that we mean when we talk about general intelligence. So I think there's a lot of work to do and on the order of, of many, 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 many years. It's a matter of continuing to, to do the work and to you know, make investments in understanding how the human brain works and how we can build algorithms that capture the, the properties that my mind has and yours. What are you doing that's different? A lot of this is based on the understanding of the brain and how that's changed. Yeah, so I would say more broadly, the emphasis of most of the other AI companies that I see out there is on building really, really good narrow AIs, whether it's for playing chess or Go or for recognizing photographs or hearing speech or recommending different advertisements in your Facebook newsfeed. The emphasis of a lot of companies and a lot of research labs is on building better and better narrow AIs with bigger and bigger data sets. And I think that's really great and is incredibly important and it, it makes a lot of sense to have a lot of people focused on that. But what we're focused on at Vicarious is building systems that exhibit human-like behaviors and human-like properties in their ability to imagine consequences, to reason about cause and effect, to fill in missing information, and to do tasks that they weren't originally trained to do or answer questions they weren't originally trained to answer. The emphasis on Vicarious is like making steps forward on that path towards general intelligence instead of exploiting what we know now about how to build narrow intelligences. And you've been at this for seven years. We've been at it for seven years, yeah. You've raised how much? 120 million? Around 120, 130 million. And how many folks do you have working here? Right now, I think we have about 55 in the mid-50s, but we have a bunch starting in the next two months or so. Oh, wow. we're, we're growing pretty rapidly right now because we're we're getting close to putting some of our robots in the wild. Putting robots in the wild that are using your brain. That are using our brain, that's right. What are they going to be doing? Tasks in, in factories and warehouses and the kinds of stuff that, that is really repetitive or dangerous for humans to be doing is the kind of stuff that, that I'd like our robots to help with. Yeah, because there's that also that challenge for robots is going from structured to unstructured, right? Exactly. That's really hard. 
right it now. is really hard and it's something that humans do without thinking about it even you know you see a i have a one and a half year old and i can see her handle the incredible variation of the environment and use tools and just do all kinds of crazy things that robots right now are, are completely incapable of not physically but because the brains of the robots aren't up to the task so yes moving from from structured to unstructured is is the next frontier in, in getting us to this age of robots that's coming so how'd you get involved with this what's your background what were you doing before here i was doing startups in computer science and design when i was about 20 i was trying to figure out okay what do i want to do with my life as a lot of 20 year olds are for me it was clear that i got the most joy from doing things that were broadly of service to a lot of people that got me thinking okay well, what are the different ways i could spend my time then and and i hit on ai as a possibility and, it, and then the question was like okay if i can solve this problem or i can help in the in finding a solution to this problem in a real way then it solves all the other problems in the largest version of, of building agi and so that got me really excited about the possibility and then the question i had to answer for myself is is now roughly the right time in history to be working on this problem or am I like 100 years too early or 500 years too early? And I think when you do the math out in terms of computational power and the knowledge we have about the brain and progress we're making on the algorithm side, now is roughly the right time to be working on trying to build a real AI. Yeah, so what are the key pieces that are making this now? Why, why are you not 500 years too early? Well, I think it's the, it's the confluence of processing power, storage, data, knowledge about the brain, and discoveries about algorithms that come together. And I think that if you take any of those away, then it really significantly reduces the possibility of us discovering these algorithms. Like, for example, if you, if you make the computers way slower, but you continue to give us a lot of theoretical advances in the algorithm side, I think that that would really hamper our progress towards AGI because you don't know if some, some elegant theory will work until you test it in the real world, which requires cameras and sensors and GPUs and, and things that can process all that information at speed to figure out if you were right or not. I think that's the, the perfect storm for building AGI is one where we have just enough processing power and algorithmic know-how and understanding of the brain in order to, to get the flywheel spinning of tinkering with what are the different algorithmic approaches and architectures that could solve this problem. Should we be worried about Skynet? Elon Musk saying we are quote unquote summoning the demon. This is the beginning of the end of humanity. This is a terrible thing that we should all be very scared about. Yeah, Elon. This is something that I think Elon gets because he's an investor, right? He's an investor. He's and he's a brilliant guy. I have so much respect for Elon. He's he's one of the people in the world who I respect the most, and I really disagree with how he approaches his thinking on this particular problem. It seems really unstructured and very based in irrational fears rather than in the actual facts like I the architectures that are going to lead to general intelligence are much further in the future than I think he believes them to be I think what he sees happening right now is oh the, the system can play chess by itself it can play go by itself it can play some video games by itself you squint and suddenly it can do everything by itself and it's learned all these concepts and it has language and and I, I think that's a, a sensible perspective for a, a you know, a non-AI scientist to have. And I could imagine how that would make someone feel scared. But if you really deeply understand how these algorithms work, suddenly it's clear that that system that plays Go or that plays some video game or something is, is not gonna wake up and start turning Earth's atmosphere into, into nanorobots or something. And at the same time, in Elon's defense, he's a guy who thinks in 20, 30 year time horizons. Yeah. 
you know, if you are thinking on 20 or 30 year time horizons, then this is a topic that makes sense to, to spend your attention on and, uh, and to put resources into. I just, I wish he wouldn't talk about it in the, in the kind of bombastic terms that he uses, particularly to the press or to people who, who have even less knowledge than he does about it. Uh, people to are very scared. Yeah. yeah people are, are, are irrationally scared about it. And I think it's a little silly. And I think irresponsible of Elon to be speaking about it the way he is. At the same time, I, I understand why he thinks about it the way he does. And I can respect his desire to make sure that we get this right, because I share that with him. It's a really important problem when you're building any new invention, you know, since the invention of fire, it's something that can either cook your food or burn your house down. And it's, it's really important to think about how you build it safely. We don't have two separate disciplines, bridge safety and bridge engineering. There's just bridge engineering. And part of building a bridge is making sure it doesn't fall over. And that's the way I, I'd like to see general intelligence build as well. And I think it was ABB who put me in touch with you guys, Grant. That's ABB. right. And I went to their showroom and saw mm -hmm. some of their robots. And one of the robots was putting together Legos, yep. like an ABB logo. Mm -hmm. And it said it took like half a day of programming to basically make a little Lego structure. That's right. So when you look at that, you're kind of like, oh, we've got a long way to go. Yeah. And again, the difference between having a narrow hand-programmed intelligence for making that one Lego structure and having a slightly more general intelligence that can make Lego structures or could like assemble iPods or something. That's one leap. And that's a leap that I think we can make in the next five years where you know you have robots that can do more flexible assembly kinds of tasks. And that's the kind of stuff we're working on here. And then to go from, okay, it can assemble iPods or build Legos and it can do long range novel scientific experiments on you know, how like RNA transcription works or something. Like that level of thinking is a whole different intensity amount in terms of what problems you're gonna have to solve, what scale you're gonna have to reach with your AI uh, in order to get there. And that's, and that's even further out. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Speaking of Musk, you also have Zuckerberg as an investor. We right? do, yeah. And is that personal or is that through Facebook? It's personal. Jeff Bezos? It's through Bezos Expeditions. And you have a bunch of, you have like Coastal Ventures. Benioff. Oh, Benioff as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Are Musk and Zuckerberg on the board? 
Because they come come from the opposite sides they of that do, debate. Yeah. I imagine it must be, make for some interesting board meetings. Or the, the, so the board is actually myself, my co-founder, Dalip, Dustin Moskovitz. Who's oh, from the, Facebook. Yeah, yeah, from Facebook. And then Sven from COSA. And so that's that's the composition of the board. And it's actually, the board meetings are fantastic. Dustin is a, is a person who I have immense respect for, and, and Sven as well. Sven was actually on the original DARPA Grand Challenge team. Oh, wow. So he knows an incredible amount about robots and about the kinds of markets that we're trying to to enter and and he's been so helpful so far so it's been it's been really great and why are you from the bay area no actually i grew up in in pennsylvania of all places pennsylvania yeah pennsylvania i i got to the bay area seven years ago to start vicarious and it was like it was like coming home oh really yeah i just felt like i was born on the wrong coast or something <laughs> and getting here it was just like oh finally my, my place my yeah. people i was supposed to be here and what were you doing in Pennsylvania? Well, I did, I mean, I grew up there, went yeah. to, you know, high school and so on. And then I, I did my undergrad at, at UPenn. I was a little misguided in my college choice. So I went, I knew I was interested in entrepreneurship and in computer science and Penn was the only Ivy with both an undergraduate business school and a computer science program. And so I'm like, okay, so that's the one I'm going to go to. Right. And then I got there and I discovered that most of, of the business school there was focused on teaching people how to be investment bankers or consultants the skill overlap with that and entrepreneurship was really low. So that was a disappointment and, and I, I did learn some things and, and I had a great experience there and met my wife there and so on. But um, I think there's a big gap between what school prepares you for and, and what you actually need when you're trying to start and run a company. So you moved out here and just started Vicarious and raised a bunch of money from the most respected, biggest tech figures in, on the planet? No, I, so before Vicarious, I started a company through the Y Combinator program. Oh, okay. And that was back in 2008. For that company, we raised a small amount of money from Founders Fund and from the other investors who were my earliest supporters at Vicarious. And that company, we did touch screens for high volume retail stores and, and stuff. That was a great experience. That kind of got me my initial startup education. And what was that company called? It's called Frogmetrics. This is pre pre iPad touch screens at the oh pre iPad pre iPad pre iPad we too early on that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so what happened to Frogmetrics? So I it, it I mean we got some some great customers and and some early sales and stuff. But what I learned through that company was a don't try and sell some exotic technology during a financial crisis and b um, <laughs> the process of doing these enterprise sales when you have a new thing. It requires buy-in from like so many different stakeholders, and that that whole process really wrings the profit out of it. And so we got some business, but it, it didn't turn into a huge company. So ultimately, in, instead of trying to take it somewhere, I, I joined Founders Fund as an EIR, spent some time there, and then started Vicarious. Right. And I was fortunate for them to to want to back me again. And so you started this seven years ago. Yeah. What has the evolution been of the company, or more broadly, AI, in terms of has it kind of come along at about the pace you expected? Because AI has a long history of being like, oh, now it's about to take over the world. <laughs> and it's never worked out so far. <laughs> well, I think it actually has taken over the world in the sense that, you know, right now, 100% of your Google searches use AI. You carry around a phone with you that has you know, dedicated AI circuitry in it. It's absolutely everywhere. You use it transparently. So I think it, it actually has taken over the world. And that's why the graph of attendees to the, the Neural Information Processing Conference looks like the Bitcoin price graph. Um, <laughs> so like, AI is a real thing and it's not going away. It's like this is, it's come to power so much of, of the decision making that occurs now inside the tech companies. I think that that's going to diffuse into the Fortune 1000 over the next you know, five, 10 years. It's a big thing and it's not, not disappearing anytime soon. Now that said, the, the history of progress in the field is one of a series of jumps. 
and it's hard to predict when those jumps occur. I think we made some jumps here internally that got us to the point where we are now, where we can put it inside the robot and have the robot do some tasks. And I think there's you know a bunch more jumps in our future that will get it into even more and more general environments, doing even more things. So, what will your your upcoming robots? What will they be able to do that others can't? And in other words, are they going to be a you know, have some level of autonomy in a warehouse that, you know, your typical robots today do not? So we're not yet announcing the specifics on the robots that we're going to be going right. going with in the future. We will, when they do come out, you'll see all all the things they can do or like how they're different from, from other brains for robots. But I think generally, to give you a big picture of it, it's it takes less training data and less programming dramatically. So it's smarter from the get-go. It's smarter from the get-go than a robot without our brain inside of it. And it was a couple of years ago, you guys got a bit of press around CAPTCHA. Yeah, that's right. right. If you want to build intelligence, the first thing you have to really start with is a sensory domain. If your AI can't perceive the, the world around it, it's not going to learn anything. So, And you can pretty much take your pick. We chose vision because it was the easiest to debug and you know it's commercially valuable on its own. And so our first task as a company was, can we build a vision system that captures the same computational principles as the human brain? To test the system, we said, "Well, how do we, how do we humans?" So, sorry, so what does that, what does that mean exactly? So the computer can see the world and process it like the human brain does. Yeah, in a way that's analogous to the way the human brain does. So, so okay. I'll give you some specific examples of it. We know that in the human brain, a shape and appearance are factorized. Okay. So you see shape and appearance separately, which is why the shirt I'm wearing can have any pattern on it, and you still realize it's a T-shirt. So that's one example of of a thing we know about the brain. And there are a lot of these such examples. And so we're, we're trying to build a system that checks those boxes. Right. And another box to check would be that you should be able to train it with one or two or three examples of something and have it recognize that in all kinds of new circumstances. These are kind of our, our, our feature list of what is a set of AI algorithms that are modeled after the human brain look like. And the way we tested the system was the way humans test each other to sort of prove that you're human, which is showing it captures. And so that was the first thing. And the captures, I mean, I'm sure everybody knows what they are by now, but they're the kind of the street signs or... Squiggly letters. They're squiggly squiggly letters letters to show that I am not a robot. You have to fill this out on whatever website. Yeah, That's right. So we showed that we could prove that we were... Our AI could prove that it was human in the way that, you know, people prove... Right, so your robots can click the box that says I am not a robot. (laughs) Exactly. And pass the test. Yeah, so that was was the very early research we did a couple years ago, and then we published it later this, you know, earlier this year in science. And why was that a big deal? Well, if you look at the, going back to the narrow versus general AI distinction, if you look at what it takes to get a narrow AI system, like the kind Google builds to read CAPTCHAs, to have Google system read just one style of CAPTCHA, it took something like 2.4 million labeled examples of CAPTCHAs. They have to have access to the software that generates the CAPTCHAs. Which is why Google is so good at having smart tools is because they have more data than anybody, right? Well, if you're building a narrow AI system, yeah. having a lot of data matters. Yeah. So anyway, so so Google published a paper about their you know about reading captures using their system, and for their system to work, it was you know two and a half million examples of captures, whereas we do the same thing but better using like 240 examples or something. Oh wow! Yeah, and our so we don't like even need captures. many 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 have, many orders of magnitude less. Right. We we just have 240 examples of single letters. So our system going in has never seen a capture before. It just learned to read like a kid, where you show it. This is an A. This is a B, this is a C. And then the other thing that's an important distinction between our system and like these sort of old brain kinds of approaches is that if you take that, that system that Google spent two and a half million images training 
and you just change the space between the letters a little bit. Their system goes from being, you know, 90 plus percent accurate reading the captures to being like 6% accurate. That just that just, just falls off a cliff. Falls off a cliff. You you make the you, you space the letters out by 25% and it can't read anymore. Whereas our system, the accuracy actually goes up when you space the letters out because it's easier to read letters when they're spaced out, just you know, like like a human. So right. anyway, it's that kind of stuff that show the properties that are different about our approach in a fundamental wow. way than than what exists at places like Google. How important to your work then is neurology and advances in you know the knowledge of the brain and how it works and the kind of the research going on in that field. I mean, do you bring that in? Is that your starting point? It's not our starting point. I mean, it's it's one of one of our starting points. We we have to to pull from I would say three different poles. One is we look at the statistical regularities and sensory data. When you're sitting at a table and looking at a, a soda can or something, the pixels that make up the soda can aren't teleporting at random all over your visual field. They like tend to stay in the same spot. When you move your shoulders from side to side and change your perspective on the soda can, the world transforms itself the same way every time you move your shoulders that way. Right. And so there's all of these really fundamental regularities in sensory data that come from physics. And those are the, the regularities that evolution took advantage of when designing our brains that becomes our set of uh, requirements or what we call inductive biases in, in building the algorithms we build here. We also draw inductive biases from the brain. So we know in physics or in, in the real world, the shape of objects and their appearance can vary independently. So you can have a soda can with any kind of label on it and it's still a soda can. You also see the same structure in, in the actual neocortex when you're watching a visual cortex process images, the shape information and the texture information go on separate pathways that are interlinked. We can triangulate then between both of those things. It's in the brain and it's in the physics of the world. And we can combine that into a mathematical framework for uh, how you introduce those sets of constraints. Those, are, those will be constraints about like, what's a reasonable algorithm, inference algorithm for the brain to be implementing that we can justify in terms of computational costs, in terms of storage complexity, in terms of inference time, training time, all those things. So we can use all of those as pieces of information to help steer us towards algorithms right. that work more and more like the brain. So effectively, you're trying to recreate the brain via algorithm. Yeah, but in an, you know, I think when people say recreate the brain, they, they tend to think of us sitting here with digital neurons yeah. and you know dendrites <laughs> and stuff, and it's not like that at all. I think the best analogy for this is flight. When you're trying to build a plane, you really care about lift, thrust, and friction. You don't care about feathers or beaks. The feathers and beaks exist because they help with lift and friction and thrust. And so we are doing the same thing for the brain, where we're really interested in why does a particular brain structure exist, or why is there a particular cortical wiring, not what is the cortical wiring and how do we copy it. And so when you go back to this idea of this being the last invention, so say we get there, why is this so powerful? If you can kind of give a sense of the, if you have a brain that has access to... It's, it's, uh, it's super easy to, to explain, you know, like imagine... Imagine a person who has a photographic memory and has read every document that any human has ever written in the history of time. They can think for 60,000 years for every second that passes. Okay. So <laughs> if you have a brain like that, oh, and by yeah. the way, you can make as many copies of this brain as you want to. If you have a brain like that, then questions that are really difficult for us to answer as a species or as individuals about the nature of the universe, how, how do you build a fusion reactor, you know, how do you build a teleporter, things that would be amazing if we had them, but are just out of reach of our, our small mi minds, become in reach all of a sudden. And that's why this is such an amazing thing to work on. 
have you thought about what the world looks like if that actually comes to pass? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's something that people at Vicarious think about a lot. If you do create that, I mean, yeah. kind of every problem is solved, it seems. Is that just too simplistic? Every problem is solved, it seems. Yeah, I mean, that's. I don't think it's too simplistic. I think there will be new problems, but I think they'll be on a much different scale. Like, right now, we think about problems in the form of, you know, how do we prevent the, the planet from overheating and, and the ice caps from melting? But, like, if if we have a you know a brain the size of the universe then we start thinking like oh how do we prevent heat death how do we fight against the heat death of the universe so like it's it's just a totally different time scale and particle scale but i think we'll still have problems to solve what's getting a bit more play recently is this idea of cognitive bias within ai especially you know the kind of diversity or lack thereof of people creating ais and the problems that come out that surface once they are put out into the world and be like oh god you know like I'm much more scared of filter bubbles than I am of bias in the design of the architecture. Like, yes, you can introduce bias into your system by choosing how many layers it has or how you connect those layers together. And I think of that as like nature versus nurture. You have a much more dramatic effect in creating a biased AI with nurture, just the way you have a much more dramatic effect creating a biased human with nurture. So if you train an AI on nothing but white supremacist literature, then you're going to get a white supremacist AI. Or if you train a human on nothing but white supremacist literature, you're going to get yeah, a white, white supremacist. supremacist right. And so I think it's, it's those filter bubbles or those biased data sets that create much more problem, I would think, than the choosing the number of layers or the architect, the topology of the network is something that I, I think is, it's still a problem, but it's, it's not the one that we should sp- be spending most of our time focused on. I think the real problem is about data set bias and about filter bubbles. And I also think that it has a lot to do with mirroring back to us who we are in a way that can be really hurtful. I was talking with someone in journalism and, and they were wistfully remembering the days when there were three network television news shows yeah. and they all covered roughly the same stuff. And it became a point of synchronization for society. And it, it prevented society from, from going off the rails into having a, a person having views that were too weird and too different from the other people. Whereas now, because uh, of the power of the algorithms and the power of mass personalization. Anybody can create a community. Yeah. And you can create a community around a belief in whatever you want without being checked by external reality. That gets into a dangerous place because you know I think facts matter and the more we allow ourselves to believe the things that are written on the internet provided for us by algorithms that want to choose things that they'll know we'll like to read, I think the more we, we isolate ourselves from each other and the more we tend to drift from what's actually true. Can you see your stuff being integrated into something like, I mean, talking about filter bubbles, into something like Facebook? No. Why? Well, it's, it's a different, like, you have to think of our system like a, like a toddler or you know, a human brain for performing the kinds of physical activities and manipulations that children perform or, or, or adults perform with their hands. I don't know what Facebook would do with an AI that's really great at manipulating things physically. Maybe they do something with it, but it certainly wouldn't be. It wouldn't have anything to do with their newsfeed or right. the filter bubbles. But so, but the the robots was a, that is just a first application, no? Yeah, but the the second application is going to be grounded in the same kinds of stuff as the first application. Like it's, I think, to get to general intelligence, you have to start with a body, and so we're starting with the body. The moment it gets so smart that we can take it out of the body and it still does something interesting is the moment that we're not worried about Facebook anymore because we have teleporters and fusion reactors and a Dyson sphere around our sun. The what? A Dyson sphere. What is the Dyson sphere? The Dyson sphere is a, is a giant contraption that harvests all the energy in a star. 
Oh yeah, we should definitely get one of those. Yeah, it'll level us <laughs> up as a civilization. We'll be we'll be on the next level. And do you say that in jest, or do you say that in actual? That's a possibility. A Dyson sphere is a possibility. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think to rule out a future where we could have a Dyson sphere, I think would be a bad bet because the future is a long time. And it you is. look and you look at the arc of humanity, and we're getting better and better at building more and more stuff. Maybe you could rule out a Dyson sphere just because the AIs will figure out a way more efficient way to do it than building a whole Dyson sphere. So t- back to the robots, speaking to lots of, as I did for this thing we just di- uh, did, speaking to a lot of people in that world, the killer app, not like actual killer Terminator app, but the actual app for robotics, everybody said, is Rosie the robot. Yeah. With this helper robot made in your house that can do all of these quite boring rote tasks but everybody you talk to is like that is really hard yeah do you think we'll see that in our, how old are you i'm 35 do you think we'll see that in our in your lifetime i think so i don't think we'll see it first but i think we'll see it because that's when i mean because that's what everybody says is like look if you can get something that because also there's great technologies all over the place but then there's always got to be something that grabs people's attention be like that is useful i will pay for that I will make an industry based on that. Yeah, like I think that's true. We'll get there in the long run, and that's a, a great destination. But I would say the killer app for robots is not in the home. It's it's in the factory. It's in the store. It's in the places where the robot's going to be. You know, how much time per day do you need Rosie to be like picking stuff up and cleaning the dishes, or whatever? It's probably not 24 hours a day no. because there's just not that much mess in your house unless you're doing something really weird. And so... <laughs> I think, or you have. I have a fourteen-month-old, or you have a fourteen-month-old. I have a sixteen-month-old, and even yeah. with, the, you know, like you still, it's not going to. My kid happen. would keep Rosie pretty busy. I don't. I don't believe it. Your kid probably also <laughs> sleeps sixteen hours a day. So, ah, oh, no, he doesn't. <laughs> anyway, so I think the real use case is for a robot for the next one, but way before Rosie is for robots that are working twenty-four hours a day to make at first, you know, electronics and stoves and all kinds of things that drive down the the price of living for all the people in the world and make living vastly more affordable because you know everything one of our our clients was telling me there's no such thing as material costs there's only labor costs the material is just stuff in the ground that you need to pull out with labor and move around with labor right and all of its labor and so if you can build robots that 24/7 are are doing labor that lets us get to a world where everything's more affordable and we live in like a Jetsons-like society where, where there's hyperloops connecting every city. And I, I think that that's the future that I would like to see next. And that's one that's much more in reach than Rosie. We'll get to Rosie, but we'll start with industry. And so, not to get too philosophical, but have you thought about what that would actually, what society would look like? The same basic story has replayed itself over and over again, which is that we we, we take a, a job that used to take 50 people and we make it take five, whether that's planting seeds in a field or making a shoe or cooking a meal or whatever it is, getting, fetching water. You know, you used to have to go fetch the water and put it in a jug. A lot uh, of people still do. Right, exactly. Okay, so the long arc of human history is an arc of taking work and making it need to be done by fewer and fewer people. The coming robot age is that story again and I don't think, if you look back through the last 3,000 years, there's more jobs now than there ever have been. Just because we play the story again another time doesn't mean all of a sudden, wow, all the jobs are gone. It just, I think it just means the jobs are different. We, instead of having a, a person who's assembling light bulbs or something, we have a person who's a drone pilot for Amazon. 
you know, so that you right. press the button that you want something and it just lo- lowers itself right down to you. Like, I think the future can be awesome and full of all kinds of great stuff if we open our eyes to it and relax. And that is all the time we have for another episode of Danny in the Valley. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Scott for taking the time to chat. And also an extra special thank you for allowing me to stick around for the gourmet pizza. So after we had our interview, it was around lunchtime. And they have an in-house chef who makes magic pizzas. And they rolled them all out. I got a bunch of pieces in a to-go box. And it made the drive home much more enjoyable. Um, So thank you for that um and that is it for me uh we will see you next week as we always do you can find me online at thetimes.co.uk in the newspaper in the at the sunday times you can find me on twitter at danny fortson and on the email electronic mail danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.